Welcome to CME on ReachMD. This episode is part of our Minute CE curriculum. Prior to beginning the activity, please be sure to review the faculty and commercial support disclosure statements, as well as the learning objectives. Let's go to the panel. That's what's next, right? Okay. All right, so I think like, like they did for the CTEF, um, we could probably kind of go back to the case real quick. Um, and Huda, maybe we can start with, start with you. So if in, your, in your case, when you went through the CT, I was pretty impressed with the amount of fibrosis that was in there. Um, what, were your, what were your thoughts about, you know, how that, if that patient was limited by their pH or, I mean, did you, you must have had a thought before you consider therapy? Sure. Um, yeah, the fibrosis was definitely pretty impressive on his CT, um, which obviously could explain uh, his limitations, his hypoxemia that he was experiencing. Um, I think it's hard just looking at the imaging alone to figure out what is the predominant factor that is contributing to the limitation, whether it's the pulmonary vascular resistance, the pH, or um, the fibrosis itself. Um, I think looking at that scan, I could have easily thought to myself, it's mainly the the fibrosis, just given how significant it was. Um, but then looking at that, once I saw the echo and saw that RV dysfunction, um, it seemed to me like it was a little more mixed at that point. Yeah, so with that in mind, uh, Yuri, what do you think about RV dysfunction? I mean, it comes in different flavors. We use this term as a, we just throw it out there. Does the patient have RV dysfunction as if it's binary? Um, you, you probably see a lot of, I assume we, you see a lot of fibrosis patients who have stable, mild RV dysfunction going over years when they're referred to you, for instance, um, as opposed to someone with much more significant RV dysfunction. And once you answer that question, maybe you can let us know what what are the metrics you use for RV dysfunction? Yeah, so there are probably two ways to look at this. So if you have a temporal trend, right? So if you have a temporal trend of echocardiograms over time, it can be this this question is much more made much more easy for you right because you can sort of figure out if they've developed rv dysfunction over time and they're becoming in in tandem they're becoming more symptomatically limited then it's probably the rv dysfunction that's driving it they probably should you treat their ph if you just have a static echo right where you don't know what's been going on in the past um you can use things like you know tapsy to spap ratio um you know um you can use sort of other you know other measures of objective rv dysfunction um, and, but the reality is that, you know, you have to really figure out in your mind what you think the, as you mentioned, what you think the predominant driver of this patient's symptomatology is. And if you can do a CPAT, that's great. But oftentimes, as you mentioned, you can't, you can't do that. Um, and I, I do think that sometimes these patients merit a trial of therapy, um, and that therapy is usually process cyclin based therapy, um, rather than sort of talking ourselves out of treating them simply because they have significant fibrosis. Yeah. So, Siva, um, what do you think about treating these patients? I think, I, think, I mean, here we do, we do a quite, quite, a, quite a bit of the parental approach. I think if you, and I mean, I've done this, so I've gone around the country and talked to a lot of people, and they think we're crazy for doing parental process cyclines uh, in patients like the one uh, Huda just... Uh, Huda just showed. I mean, what are your thoughts on what should be offered and maybe what you offer in your practice? So I, um, 
I also deal with a lot of uh, lung transplant patients. So we see about 50 to 60% of the lung transplant evaluation patients have um, moderate to severe pH. Uh, when they come to us, they are high oxygen requirements and uh, moderate to severe pH. What do you do with severe RV dysfunction most of the time? Um, transplant surgeon will always be um, um, skeptical about transplanting this patient without having to address the RV dysfunction. So we, I prefer um, parenteral because that's one in my mind, it's short acting. If they develop side effects, we can always um, scale back and uh, discontinue. And also we see the improvement in a short time of uh, duration so that we can decide whether this is helping the patient or not. Not in terms of actually RV dysfunction will get better, at least the patient symptomatically um, improve or not improve uh, in a shorter period of time compared to oral medications or even inhaled medications. The difficulty I have, like even though FDA-approved inhaled medications are available, I still struggle with my patient population because um, not much of a improvement in the symptoms of the patient. And um, the point to the point, actually, they can be considered for any... Um, they can be considered for towards transplant or not. But, um, and also the side effects, I see a lot of side effects in terms of respiratory side effects, which made very exacerbated on inhaled uh, vasodilator therapy compared to uh, parenteral. I know everyone does differently, but I, my preference is uh, parenteral. Actually, severe pH patients, we have done parenteral therapy until transplant and bridge them to towards transplant successfully um, most of the time, I would say. Yeah. yeah. But at, as, as you guys did a study, we have now not done like any internal study to assess like what, what's the outcome of our patient population. But um, I think that's one of the ways we approach our patients too. Yeah, I, I think I think the two things that people are concerned about, and for good reason, is they're worried about making gas exchange worse. And the people that we're ending up treating are already very perturbed with their gas exchange. So they're already requiring a significant amount of oxygen at rest, but particularly on exertion. I mean, some of these people as outpatients are on 10, 15 liters of oxygen. Um, So that scares folks um, for, for giving a parental therapy or a systemic therapy, whether you might have diffuse vasodilation in the lung and cause worsening BQ mismatch. And then the other thing I think that scares folks, again, appropriately, is the pathology. The pathology does suggest that there's venopathy and capillary duplication. And we do know that this PCH-PVOD sort of spectrum, you know, tends to have a uh, negative response, if you will, and and, and significant worsening, the potential for worsening, um, you know, when we treat them with systemic vasodilators. in that context, we started treating a lot of these patients in-house because we also were worried. Mm-hmm. Uh, but yeah. again, our clinical experience has been, I think, knock on wood, relatively relatively good. Um, does does I'll just throw this out here. If you have a fibrosis, if I showed you a, a fibrosis patient with, you know, severe hemodynamics, severe um, fibrosis, you know, RV dysfunction, the whole story, um, and I told you they were idiopathic, some of the questions coming through here are like, you know, are these are, and then I and then I changed the story and I said actually this patient has scleroderma, 
you know, does that change what you do? If they have an autoimmune disease, a defined autoimmune disease, or an autoimmune flavor, and let's say you were blinded to that piece of information, does that change your threshold to offer therapy? Or what do you think, Yuri? So I think that if you have significant fibrosis and you have significant RV dysfunction, those patients should be offered therapy irrespective of the underlying cause. Um, my threshold is lower for scleroderma patients. So scler- I, in my opinion, sort of scleroderma patients, if they have any suggestion of pulmonary hypertension, you should treat the pulmonary hypertension. Um, in people who have IPF, that's a little bit, it's a little bit more difficult to sort of make that statement. Um, but I think that if you have significant RV dilation, you know, RV dysfunction and significant fibrosis, even with IPF, I would usually admit them. I would try parenteral prostacyclin. And, and not to belabor this point, but if you... When we call someone IPF, we assume that we've done some workup, right, to label them idiopathic by virtue of the fact that it's exclusionary diagnosis or you have a classic CAT scan. But we all know the classic CAT scan, you know, we we can see patients with a classic CAT scan for IPF, but it turns out to have an etiology. Um, So I guess the question is, do you think, do how, what is, do, do you have a standardized approach to sort of your serologic evaluation, your physical exam. I mean, there's a whole bunch of things that I think we, and I can say this because I'm obviously a pulmonary person too, we, that we don't, we don't really, we sort of label people idiopathic, but we don't take a very great environmental history. We don't do a standardized serologic approach. You know, I've seen patients in the clinic that have come to me with severe pulmonary hypertension labeled idiopathic, and they have obvious sclerodactyly, and that starts off a whole cascade of events. So do you find that, do you have a, is your panel of serologies, Siva, changed over time? Like, do you check, are you very aggressive with this whole interstitial pneumonia with autoimmune features? Yes. Um, all patients. Uh, we do have the full panel of uh, CTD workup we do um, before actually we uh, label them IPF. Most of them come to us as like, as all of us know, as IPF. Um, but like when you uh, go into the details and do the, panel and the whole workup that we do for lung transplants, um, you realize, okay, most of the time, the IPFs have some other reason to have the fibrosis. So that um, dictates like how we are going to actually address the pulmonary hypertension part. And it makes it, makes it a little bit easier for us to actually um, have confidence in treating the pH compared to not knowing what's the etiology for the pH. So especially the CTD-associated pH, we all see actually good improvement in their outcomes as well as functionality when you aggressively treat the pulmonary hypertension um, compared to non-treating anything. So I uh, definitely do the whole workup for um, most of the uh, IPF patients. Actually, all IPF patients come through to transplant. We do all work up to diagnose um, what's the etiology. And then like depends on like what we find and we segment into other details, hypersensitivity pneumonitis workup and other types of workup for the ILD etiology, but definitely CTD workup. Yeah, obviously the devil's in the details because I bet you we all have different panels that we probably send. Mm-hmm. Um, and, you know, it's, uh, I personally think it should be standardized. Shelly, do you have a question? to this problem. Um, I think, you know, the, the data on, on the PD-5s were done in very low doses. That initial study was done on 20 milligrams, which is really quite low. And 
Um, when you're looking at patients who already have a very complicated life, a trial of PDA5 inhibitors um, is actually very gratifying. And at the VA, where we have a huge number of patients with underlying lung disease, we start this up because you can get it immediately. It's well tolerated, and, and um, patients actually do get better. They don't get great, but every little bit that you can make in improving them gives them a little bit of margin. The other thing that we use, which hasn't been mentioned at all, is DIG, which is when you have RV dysfunction, digoxin is an effective drug to improve myocardial function. And this is very much load dependent. And that's one of the reasons that we see variability in the echoes over time. They come in with hypoxia and worsening pulmonary hypertension and the RV goes to stool. And then you treat them and then the RV gets a little better and you feel better and then it goes bad and forth. It's, it's not that the RV is basically defective, it's the load that's put on it. So anything that you can do to improve RV contractility and reduce the size helps. So those are my suggestions, which is, yes, it's very nice to use parenteral prostacyclines, but it's really a, a, a very big jump for patients. And the, the downside risk of using a PD-5 inhibitor is extremely minimal. Yeah, that's um, some good, good points. Yeah. Um, you know, with regard to um, IPF, I think there's probably a difference if you're bridging somebody to transplant versus some of these elderly IPF patients that have comorbidities um, but also have pH and RV dysfunction. So if people could address that. The other thing I would suggest is um, I think that uh, the time is ripe, you know, in appropriate patients to compare and contrast in a study, you know, high-dose inhaled triprosinol with parenteral triprosinol in appropriately a chosen cohort. Yeah, I, I think for the for the first question um, regarding like the I, the older IPF patient who happens to have some pH and RV dysfunction. Again, I think the devil's in the details, right? Exactly how much how bad their situation is and how frail they are, and and I think that goes back to Shelley's point, which is, you know, I, I didn't. I hope the takeaway message here is not that we should be using parental treprostanil in all these patients. That's not the message. <laughs> but I think in the severe, I, I was I hoping I stressed this, but it was it's for the it's for the more advanced group of patients. Um, for the mild to moderate cases, it's a judgment call. It has to do with the mm -hmm. patient's you know understanding of what they want out of the rest. If, do they want to take a trial of therapy? Are they happy with their quality of life? On your end, you're, you're saying, hey, this is uh, associated with survival, so we should try to do something about it. Again, keeping in mind it's an association. It's not necessarily a cause and effect. So I think all those factors play into sort of that, that phenotype, the older patient who has some pH and some RV dysfunction. And then, as you know, a lot of these people have comorbidities. They have diastology. They have other issues playing into this as you, as you work them up. Um, as far as your second question, which was now, I'm well, you know, it was regarding doing a trial to yes. compare so, and contrast, yes. and also, do you, are you guys using inhaled Tyveso, You know, like Steve Nathan is pushing, or yeah, or you not? <laughs> um, uh, yeah, I, I think the, the main message from this, hopefully, this other main message came through is that inhaled triprostanol is the FDA-approved medication. This is what we're doing. This is what's been approved, and we're certainly doing that as well. Again, we kind of reserve the parenteral approach for the more severe cases. Uh, 
And I think one of the issues with inhaled triprostanil that we've run into is that a lot of our patients are presenting as inpatients. And getting inhaled triprostanil going as an inpatient has been a bear, um, to say the least, because just because of how ill they are, it's not inconceivable. And I, I would, I'm sure you guys appreciate this, that a lot of these patients end up with us as inpatients. And in that setting, it's really tough to sort of, you know, you want to treat them. So that's where we're using a lot of sildenafil, maybe some inhaled nitric oxide, and then we're sort of stuck, if you will, you know, starting in a parental approach, and then we might transition to inhaled or transition to, you know, make that sort of move. So that's the other issue I think that we've, that we've run into. There are some questions here surrounding lung transplantation, um, just for a second, is like, um, and Siva, maybe you can comment on this, in the terms of is do you have a goal of trying to treat patients to the point, do, in other words, do you, at UCLA we have an issue with double versus single based on the degree of pulmonary hypertension, which I think most centers tend to offer double, trans, double lung transplants when there's significant pulmonary hypertension. Again, every center has a different threshold. But do you try to treat their pH also in an effort to get them a single lung because you feel single is a more um, sort of a safer procedure or less morbid, if you will? Yeah, so the very severe pulmonary hypertension with ILD patients, um, that's the group, actually. I agree with your um, statement saying that I try the parenteral actually on a moderate to severe pH patient. So that patient group, actually, we try to treat to um, do single or double. That increases the chance for the patient to get the transplant. If we wait for the dual lung transplant, the wait time can be uh, very long. So that's one of the reasons we aggressively treat at that short period so that we can get the RV dysfunction to get better. Do you, do you have a sorry to interrupt, but do you have a threshold over at USC for what, when you offer the single? Um, yeah, actually, we have done severe pulmonary hypertension patients on ECMO. Single? On single, yes. We, uh, we put them on VA ECMO bridge them to transplant and do the single lung transplant. And when they come out, their RV function is back to normal as well as their outcomes are pretty good. Um, when they have really no time, like only way to actually support the RV as well as get, the, get them to transplant is VA ECMO. So we have done single lung transplant on severe pH patients, PA pressures like more than hundreds. Mm. And um, VA ECMO bridge to transplant, single lung transplant. But Otherwise, the preference is actually double lung transplant. If the PA pressure is above 60, that's our threshold for the surgeons. If the systolic pressure is above 60 and your cardiac index is like borderline 1.8 to 2, uh, they prefer to do double lung transplant if we have the time to wait on the patient. So it does, uh, it does play into what you offer the patient? Right. Yeah. Yes. Okay. You know, just as an additional comment from the transplant um, point of view, you know, you have these patients sometimes where they are kind of, they meet criteria for transplant and they should be transplanted, but they're too functionally limited. And I think you alluded to this earlier, Sue, you know, sometimes you can get those people to be more functional with a course of treating the pH. Correct. Um, and then they actually, and with this, we've, we've seen this happen. We've had this happen ourselves where people go from being not candidates because they're too immobile and too frail to actually being very robust because the pH is treated. Now they're better transplant okay. candidates. Yeah. So there may be two things going on here. One is to potentially bridge someone to a single instead of a double, right. which is, it's just I mean, considered a less morbid procedure for good for good reason. And then there's also a role for, for uh, you know, actually 
getting a stronger, more physically rehabilitated person to transplant, mm-hmm. which is always also, you know, there's plenty of data showing frailty and bad outcomes equals bad outcomes or worse outcomes. So we want to make people as functional as possible before, before we do a transplant. That makes good sense. Um, I think, let me just see if there's any more questions here. There's some question here about imaging and biomarkers. Um, obviously CPET is brought up by this question as well. It's not, it's not, you know, it's not easy to do on these, or at least right now, we don't have any data on these severely hypoxic patients, but any role of, of brain natriuretic peptide, uh, does that, does that buy you anything or do you sometimes forget to do it? It's an afterthought. (laughs) We regularly do <laughs> anti-pro VMB, but we al- always actually also do uh, cardiac MRIs, a lot of these patients, to um, more predict what the RV dysfunction is, as well as you can get the REF on the uh, cardiac MRI. So that can guide us, like, is it going to be safely um, be able to be transplanted, one single lung transplant or double lung we sometimes use the cardiac MRI, uh, REF, to determine that as well. NT-Pro BNB we do regularly, but like, do we make um, decisions, like main decisions? Probably not. Yeah. And uh, With the MRI, we, we, we have a uh, heart rate issue. Yes. Do you, guys, uh, do you guys actually beta block those people to get the MRI? We do. We do, actually. You're bold. We bold. We do. Yeah, it's... Um, it's a it's a it's it's a great study. Um, yes, but it's uh, obviously has its uh, its limitations. Yeah, it's it's uh, practical limitations. But we try to get that number so that um, we can determine like whether we can go with a single or double uh, with the number that we have in front of us. Yeah, um, I just want to take ten seconds here to let everyone know that we actually have uh, at UCLA an animal model for group three pH, which Dr. Hong and others. Igbali and Sovan Umar have uh, have mastered. It's actually the only group three pH model, uh, an animal model that's available in the literature. Uh, this uses a combination of bleomycin and um, hypoxemia uh, to create a fibrosis pH phenotype with RV dysfunction. Um, it's very elegant, and uh, there's a few papers looking at that. Um, and I think it's it's primed for you know studying. The next generation of drugs, for instance. So, for instance, with what a cetatercep can offer to this population, or, or you know, whatever you know, there's a pan-rock inhibitor that's being looked at right now. There's a whole bunch of different ways of, obviously, different pathways being looked at. So, um, I just wanted to bring that up because uh, some good science is being done um, here at UCLA uh, in that regard too, with the group three sort of pH, uh, you know, sort of looking at it at the at the at the bench level. So, mm-hmm. um, any other questions from the? audience okay all right i think we'll conclude thank you thanks everybody you've been listening to cme on reach md this activity is jointly provided by global learning collaborative glc and total cme llc and is part of our minute ce curriculum to receive your free cme credit or to download this activity, go to reachmd.com slash CME. Thank you for listening.